this is the On Humans podcast with your host, Ilari Mackellan. And this is the second episode about the book Journey of Humanity by Odette Galore. Don't worry if you have not listened to the first one, although we do refer to it sometimes. Both of these episodes stand on their own feet, so to speak. This conversation is about what economic historians often call the great divergence, meaning this dramatic difference in wealth between the countries of the North Atlantic, at least initially, and the rest of the world in the past two centuries or so. And although this question might appear to be a niche question, something for developmental theorists and economic historians to tackle, it is something that I believe is important for all of us to grapple with because it is one of the keys, if not the key, to understanding the huge variation that we see in human conditions in the 21st century. So why did Europe and North America get so rich? Why were they followed by some, especially East Asian countries later on, but not by others? When focusing on the question of why did initial differences occur between Europe and the rest of the world, there are some obvious answers that present themselves. On the dark side, we have European colonialism and imperialism. And on the sunnier side, we have the invention of the steam engine, the emergence of modern science and modern medicine, and the decline in the arbitrary power of the monarchy and the aristocracy. But these cannot be the whole answers, for they only invite new questions. Why was the British Empire more technologically advanced than the Mughal Empire? Why did the Industrial Revolution happen in Europe and not in China? Why are some European colonial spin-offs, so to speak, so rich, like the United States, while others, like Brazil, are not? Odette Galore has answers to all of these questions, and whether we agree with them or not, I think he has done a wonderful job at really trying to appreciate the complexity and the deep origins of a lot of these issues that shape the modern world. Towards the end of the episode, we also turn our eyes towards the future and ask, what does this long view of history tell us? What does it recommend us in policies, in, in other means of reducing inequality, not only between nations, but we also talk about the rising inequality within nations. As always, the show notes includes a list of technical terms and names mentioned in the conversation, though I do want to highlight one of them already. So we use the term human capital throughout the conversation, and this is bread and butter stuff for those used to reading economic texts, but I know it might confuse some, and, and when we use human capital as a term, we just mean the education of the people. In other words, investment in humans themselves, into their skills, into their capabilities. Anyway, I hope that you enjoy the episode. I bring to you, again, Odette Galore. I think that talking about China can serve as a great bridge towards the second part of your book, which deals with the origins of inequality, especially inequality between nations. I mean, we all know that China is on the rise currently, but the GDP per capita in China is still one sixth or so of the U.S. I, I learned from your book that the average American farmer produces around 40 times more goods than the average Chinese farmer. So there's still huge inequalities even between countries like China and the US. And this obviously poses the question, why? Why did this uh, escape from the Malthusian trap, this emergence of the modern growth regime? Why did it happen in Europe and not in Asia, for example, in China? And why did it spread so efficiently to some European spin-offs like the US and not to others like Brazil, for example? One of the obvious answers would be, especially if talking about the relationship the difference between Europe and Asia, would be colonialism. And uh, I think that you take colonialism very seriously and you have a very helpful discussion on it. You write, 
African countries whose populations were most affected by enslavement and forced migration have less developed economies to this day. I think the discussion, though, about India was most clarifying for me. Could you talk a little bit about the dynamics in the, in the Indian colonial experience and how colonialism in India served the British growth regime and hindered the Indian growth regime? Right. So when we think about inequality across nations today, it is very important to note, based on the discussion that we had in the context of the first part of the book, that much of the inequality as we see today is originated due to the differential timing of the takeoffs across the globe. Some societies are taking off first, others they are delayed for about 150 or 200 years. So the second part of the book is trying to peel different layers of influence that could affect inequality today. I start initially precisely with the force that you were asking me about, which is the forces of colonialism. How much of the inequality that we see in the world today can be attributed to uh, this uneven relationship between colonial powers and the nations that were colonized. So if we think about India and England in the middle of the 18th century, and you focus on the textile industry, the textile industry in India is quite, uh, quite advanced at the time. And it is not obvious that this textile industry would not have been advancing in food in the absence of colonial relationship that emerged later. So then we see the emergence of colonial relationship. And England, that is somewhat more advanced than, than, than India, is basically either imposing certain terms of trade or inducing India to specialize in the production of raw material and agricultural goods, from which there are limited spillovers and limited demand for human capital. Why is it so important? Remember that what permitted societies to take off from stagnation to growth is in fact technological acceleration and its impact on human capital formation and consequently the demographic transition. So what we see in the context of these trade relationships is that India and England are pushed to different extremes. In India, we see specialization in the production of raw material, agricultural goods that have limited demand for education or human capital. In England, we see precisely the opposite, specialization, the production of industrial goods that are human capital, education intensive. So in the two societies, the forces are such that in England, we see higher demand for human capital and an earlier onset of the demographic transition in India we see depressed demand for human capital and delayed in the demographic transition till the second half of the 20th century. So while the two countries gains from trade, the gains from trade are converted in India into more people and the gains from trade in England converted into more prosperous people. Again, it shows us how trade relationship can in fact expedites the rotation of the wheels of change of the colonizers and can slow down the wheels of change in the context of those countries that are called. Yeah, a fascinating piece of data I learned was 
GDP per capita in Britain has grown during the past couple of centuries, pretty much the same amount as the population has in India. Indeed. So if you think about, when we think about total output, what a country is producing, a total income, it is composed of two components. It is income per person times the number of people. So when total income is, is, is growing, it can be due to the fact that income per person is growing, or population is growing, or both. And what I show is that in the context of India, most of the growth is generated by the growth of the size of the population rather than the material well-being of the population. So the touch in the two economies can grow in, in a very similar fashion due to the gains from trade, but the composition is very different. And as a result of it, we have a lot of people in India that are very impoverished, and we have fewer people that are prosperous in England. Because economically, Britain you know, exported those bits that were not the human capital intensive, did not require education, did not make it into a self-serving policy for the industrialists to educate the people and therefore for the families to limit their family size. Precisely. So there are two important elements, human capital and technological spillovers. Technological spillovers from the production of raw material and agricultural goods are very limited. Technological spillovers from the industrial sector are, are sizable, but perhaps most importantly, greater demand for human capital and ultimately differential effect on the demographic transition. Indeed. Well, this leaves open the question of why it was Britain that colonized India and not vice versa, for example. But let's bracket that for a while. Let's leave that aside for just a moment and return to the point about Brazil versus the US. I mean, I think that US GDP per capita is roughly 10 times the size of Brazil. So something different is going on in here. I mean, there's a lot to the story, but what would be, uh, especially focusing on the kinds of agriculture that emerged in these areas, could you give a quick story of what, how, do you, how do you understand the, the, the way that some of these European colonies became so rich and, and, and some much less so? Right. So the, the different elements that are behind the scene, and to a large extent, it is partly related to the role of institutions. So naturally, if we think about the identity of the colonizers in the North and in the South, in the Americas, the identity is different in the context of Brazil, mm. these are the Portuguese. In the context of the North, these are predominantly the English. And first, I mean, prior to the arrival of these colonizers and prior to, um, and to um, the sort of the significant impact of these colonizers, we know that England is ahead of the game relative to Portugal, and part of it is persisting over time. But in addition, the nature of agriculture that we see in the North and in the South is, is fundamentally different. So. To a large extent, if you think about the production of coffee, for instance, in Brazil, this is a production process that requires large plantations. Large plantations are ultimately inducing the emergence of uh, large landowners that inevitably gain power, political power, and ultimately can affect the political agenda and the type, type of institutions that are being formed. So not surprisingly, 
in places like Brazil or Mesoamerica in general, where the concentration of land ownership was relatively large, given the nature of the crops that existed there, we see the emergence of extractive institutions that are designed to maintain the exploitations and to maximize the rent that can be extracted from the land. And ultimately, when the colonists are departing from the Americas, they leave the legacy of these institutions and local landowners that are inheriting the, the land and they're inheriting the institutions find it beneficial to maintain the institutions that exist at the time and to perpetuate the inequality that is serving them rather well. So part of the difference, as I said, has to do with the nature of agriculture in the North and in the South and the identity of the colonizers. And I guess that part of the agriculture being different would also apply to some extent within the U.S., between the U.S. North and the U.S. South, where in the South, large plantations became the norm, extractive institutions, slavery, of course, being the most possibly extractive institution from, that we can imagine. That's, that's a great point, yes. The American South is more amenable for large plantations, and this is where we see the emergence of extractive institutions and ultimately the horrific institutions of slavery. And again, it is the same differential geographical endowment that is leading ultimately into the differential emer emergence of local institutions in, the, in these localities. I think there's a beautiful irony. Um, I think it was Voltaire who said when French and British were fighting over parts of uh, what, what is now US and, and Canada, that why would they be fighting over a few acres of snow? And it is exactly these few acres of snow that become the most productive places in the world. But just quickly, why is it that extractive institutions, such as slavery as the, as the ultimate example, but in general, these highly unequal places have a very extractive elite, why is that bad for the growth in the long run? What, what, what's the problem there? I mean, we can see that there is something ethically dubious about it, but what, what's the pro problem for a modern growth regime? So when you think about differential institutions, and we can distinguish between growth-enhancing inclusive institutions and what I call growth-retarding extractive institutions. Growth-retarding extractive institutions, to a large extent, do not permit the participation of the population's whole in the economic activity in society. So it restricts the mobility of individuals, it affects the location of talents across a few patients, and it basically is designed to maintain the status quo. It is designed not necessarily to find a way to enlarge the pie, but to assure that the pie that exists at the moment will be divided unequally. So ideally, naturally, these individuals would like it possible to enlarge the pie, but it is very difficult to enlarge the pie unless you permit individuals to have property rights, unless you permit individuals to participate in the political process and in the economic process, unless you permit individuals that are born to unfa in unfavorable background to move forward and to find occupations that are appropriate for their talents. So these individuals that are basically controlling the political agenda are willing to sacrifice the well-being of the society as a whole so as to maintain inequality. 
and I guess it's not really a, a kind of formula for great innovation uh, either. Though I do want to ask you, I mean, there's a certain optimism in the view of the relationship between extractive institutions and growth to say that fundamentally extractive institutions are actually growth retarding. But what, what do you make then of the kind of middle ground criticism, which says that yes, for the areas where you have extractive institutions, that is not a good recipe for long-term success. On the other hand, these kind of li more liberal, more democratic elite areas could never have made the transition without having access to the cheap raw materials produced by these extractive institutions. So they were kind of easy to wash the hands, so to speak, of, of, of being somewhere in London and eating the, uh, using the cheap cotton that is produced by the, by the extractive institutions in the South and then later on becoming even richer. How, how much do you think that the escape from the Malthusian regime dependent on these extractive institutions nevertheless? So, so that's a fantastic question, and I think that unfortunately we do not have very good estimates that will allow us to quantify the importance of colonialism in the context of this differential phase of development. I think that one thing that we can certainly say with certainty is that the identity of the colonizers and the identity of those societies that were colonized is predicated on an uneven development that occurred before colonialism. But we cannot blame colonialism for all the uneven development that we see across the globe because naturally uneven development occurred before the emergence of colonialism and permitted some to colonize others. When you ask me then the follow-up question, which is, could in fact the, the West industrialize and take up stagnation growth without access to cheap raw material and access to cheap labor, etc.? My answer will be and it will be an educated guess. And the educated guess is that the West would have taken out regardless. And this is basically the the, the essence of unified growth theory. These wheels of change would have rotated, perhaps slower than otherwise, but ultimately, since they keep up pace in the process of development, we would have reached this pace. Now, the pace certainly was affected by, by the colonialism and by the ability to produce goods in a, in a cheaper way than otherwise due to exploitation of labor and slavery. So this was certainly critical for the pace of the transition, but I don't think that it would be critical for the actual transition. Transition would have occurred either way, but perhaps it would have happened decades later, and perhaps it would be less pronounced as we see it across the globe. Unfortunately, as I said, it is relatively difficult to estimate, and we do not have estimates to re on which I can rely and I can tell you with sort of with confidence that uh, most of it would have occurred without. Some people made this statement, but I don't think that it's based on evidence. So what do you think of Kenneth Pomeranz, for example, who in the famous book, The Great Divergence, argues that one of the very reasons why, why it was Britain in particular that was able to industrialize before, for example, China, was that they had this access to what he called ghost acres, for example, where all this very 
ecologically difficult stuff, you know, you, like having forests that put, produce wood, having a field that produces cotton, you could, they could push it all away and they could focus on industrialism. Whereas, for example, in China, he gives some evidence suggesting that in uh, proto-industrial areas, people were actually kind of called back from industry back towards the production of basic goods like cotton, like firewood, etc. So I'm sympathetic, generally speaking, uh, with the, the idea that uh, the sort of access to an incredible amount of land permitted several things, permitted sort of population expansion into other territories, permitted basically access to incredible amount of raw material that uh, could be produced elsewhere and free space for industrial production. But I'm certainly not sympathetic to the idea that the zero one argument. Yes, that's one of the forces. So, Pomeranz so is making an argument that, uh, that uh, explains perhaps part of what we see across the globe. But this is not necessarily the dominating argument. And certainly, is not explaining 100% of the variations. It's an argument. There are many others. It's a compelling argument, but it's not necessarily the dominating. It's one of the many forces that operated at the time. I think much more important at the time, from my viewpoint, is the, 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 the production of property rights, technological progress, and the, the, the ultimate increase in the demand for human capital, the demographic transition. Okay, well, well, why don't we then go into those things that you regard as more important, I think the most generic term we can give to these, whether it's techno technologies, ideas, et cetera, is, is institutions. Um, I guess people would give different names to what was the uniquely European institutions, whether it's liberalism, capitalism, you pick your favorite. Um, but let's, uh, could you give a quick, quick kind of overview of what do you think then think uh, in, on the institutional front was so uh, growth enhancing? that allowed European countries to take off sooner than, for example, India, and then even colonize India later. Right. So when we think about the fingerprints of institutions, we do see that at a certain point in the course of human history, some societies are adopting what we may define as inclusive growth-enhancing institutions that permit wide participation of individuals in the political arena, wide participation of individuals in the economic arena, and consequently, they permit social mobility and better allocation of talents across occupations. This fosters naturally technological progress, this fosters productivity uh, directly and indirectly, and uh, in ultimately, it fosters social cohesiveness that is associated with the nature of this society. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we see, because of different historical reasons, the emergence of extractive institutions in which political participation is limited, economic participation is limited, and consequently economic efficiency is being covered. And the question is, why do we see these divergences? And there are different viewpoints and different scholars about why do we see these divergences. So some argue that, in fact, this divergence has to do with some critical junctures in human history, some random event that caused some societies to adopt proper institutions, other extractive institutions, and this led into divergence. Yeah. Manna from heaven, as you say. Mm -hmm. So as I call it, this is manna from heaven. But 
to another extent, I'm not sympathetic to this viewpoint in the sense that, yes, there are instances of this sort. They're very important, but they are very limited. Could you give me an example about uh, Jewish literacy? I, I found that just fascinating as, a, as an example where institutions can emerge. Yes, I will get back to this for a moment, but so, so let me first, context of the institutions, give two examples in which we do see sort of a random critical juncture in human history that is leading into divergence in institutions. So the first uh, example that, that I would like to emphasize is the Black Death. The Black Death is occurring in Europe in between 1347 and 1352. Naturally, it's that it decimated about 40% of the European population and generated an incredible scarcity of labor. So when the Black Death was over, in fact, things remained in place, but there was significant uh, a decline in the potential labor. Naturally, this affected the land-labor ratio and consequently increased wages and competition of over workers quite dramatically. But this not affected only the agricultural labor, it affected people in the cities. If you think about England during this time period, it was an incredible decline in the size of the population in the cities. And consequently, during this time period, landowners to make concessions towards, uh, towards their workers. And this brought about gradually the decline of feudalism in England. And this decline led gradually into the emergence of greater and greater property rights and perhaps in some probability led into an early industrial revolution in England rather than in other places where the same forces did not care. So this is a nice example in which, in fact, we can view the Black Death as a random critical juncture. It did lead into enormous scarcity of labor. Most, most plausibly, it generated a decline of feudalism in England, and this decline brought about the emergence of property rights and perhaps an early industrialization. So this is a nice example in which we can map institutional it's sort of the emergence of inclusive institutions to a random critical change. Another sort of textbook example, if you wish, is uh, the Glorious Revolution. So in the context of the Glorious Revolution, prior to the Glorious Revolution, James II has uh, some thoughts that are not very appealing to, to the parliament and to many English people at the time, but the thoughts are first to revert into Catholicism, I mean, you would like basically to uh, abolish the Anglican Church and move back into uh, the Catholic Church. And second, he's sort of an admirer of Louis XIV, and he would like to, uh, to generate in England a clear, absolute monarchy of the type that exists. The Parliament doesn't like it. They call William of Orange from, uh, from the Netherlands. To, uh, to try to uh, come and battle uh, uh, James II and defeat, and in fact, uh, Williams of Orange is, uh, is defeating James II in the so-called Glorious Revolution. And ultimately, given the fact that he is foreign to England, he has to rely on the support of the parliament 
And the parliament is able to restrict his ability to, to rule the nation. And this leads into the emergence of constitutional monarchy, property rights, and ultimately perhaps early industrialization. So again, critical juncture in the sense that we can think about a counterfactual history in which James II would have defeated uh, Williams of Orange and, and England would have reverted to absolute monarchy and, uh, and industrialization would have taken place perhaps in Holland. So that's another good example. And the third example that is perhaps the most compelling one is the division of the Korean Peninsula along the 38th parallel. Here we see single nation, a single geographical entity, no great differences between the North and the South before the division. And then colonial power or, or, or superpowers are divided. The, um, the Korea into spheres of influence. And we see that this division ultimately leading decades later into an enormous gap in the, in the worlds of these two nations. Of Korea being 24-fold richer than the North and life expectancy in the South being 11 years longer than the so again, one can think about a counterfactual history in which the agreement would have been that the North is a sphere of influence of the, of the West and the South, a sphere of influence of the, of the of communism, and then we will see a reversal. So in this respect, this is a powerful case in which we see the role of institutions. I should mention that these are not necessarily political institutions. This is predominantly economic institutions because initially, in the first 30 years, both North and South Korea are under authoritarian regime. The difference is that the authoritarian regime in the South is advocating free market uh, reforms, and the, the, the authoritarian regime in the North is advocating communist ideas. I think it's a very important point, because uh, it's also often forgotten with the case of China versus Taiwan, that Taiwan was certainly not a happy democracy since its early inception in 1949 as a Indeed. So that's a, so these are these are interesting sort of examples in which we see that random critical junctures matter. But in fact, over most of human history, institutions simply evolve to fit the geographical environment, the economic environment. They were a byproduct of the process of development. So example that we touched upon is, for instance, how geography affects the nature of institutions that are in there. So if you reside in a place where crops that are native to your location are amendable for large plantations, as I said earlier, this will lead into the emergence of large plantation and therefore very powerful landowners. And these powerful landowners will have ultimately a say about the political agenda and they will likely impose or uh, for, push for the implementation of extractive institutions. So again, the idea is that the geography ultimately led to the type of institutions that we see across the globe, whether they're extractive institutions uh, uh, or inclusive institutions, and to a large extent, institutions a byproduct of the process of development. Yes, there are some instances in which critical junctures are important, but they are the exception rather than the. I think the critical juncture I was 
I was uh, mentioning earlier, I think just as a quick, uh, quick summary, do I remember this one right? So in, in, was it 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and basically brought most of the sects of Judaism to their extinction, except for one which happened to survive, which was the, 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 the small sect, the, the small rather elitist sect, which required all its members to educate their sons. And this then became the norm in Judaism for the next uh, 2,000 years nowadays, of course, also the girls, which is one of the, you would say, is one of the explanations for this in, incredible level of, of human capital, especially historically amongst the Jewish population. So that's a very powerful example. And indeed, we should, but we should map it into sort of the emergence of different cultures. So, but we talked about institutions and we can think about the next element, which is sort of differential cultural norms across societies. And why do we see the emergence of differential cultural norms across societies? And indeed, the example that you just brought up is an example that, could, that basically, again, random cultural mutation, which is basically the imposition of mandatory literacy amongst certain stacks of Judaism that is ultimately persisting over time because ultimately it becomes very profitable as human capital starts to complement the a production process in the urban sectors. And especially given that the Jewish people were not allowed to own land in many times and places in Europe, it was incredibly a good idea to, 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 have, to have a good education instead of a good uh, inheritance of land. I, I presume, but yeah, let's go into some of those ways that, uh, that, that these more, if not deterministic, then at least more kind of slow, deep forces operate. So when we don't have these random mutations explaining differences in, in, in culture, differences in institutions, um, maybe one example would be the plow versus the, the hose in agriculture and its relationship with, uh, with views on, on, on gender roles, I think is a fascinating one that has been quite well publicized recently, but could you, could you give just a quick, your, your kind of quick take on the role of the plow? I actually just interviewed Helen Fisher recently, who's an anthropologist and neuroscientist studying love. And, and she, she also talked about this. It was wonderful because it's a completely different topic, but we ended up in the same, uh, on the same topic, but yeah, so, so would you want to keep, give your quick, uh, quick take on this issue? So let me just provide a little more background here. So once we complete the discussion of the role of the institutions, we can go a little deeper in the course of human history and ask ourselves how culture affected economic development. And again, as we see in the context of institutions, we see this in different regions of the world, uh, uh, one can witness the emergence of, in some places, growth-enhancing cultural traits, in other places, growth-retarding cultural traits. And the question is, again, why? So if we think about the emergence, then naturally this will lead to the divergence between societies over time. And typically, when we think about uh, uh, culture and beyond institutions, the typical example that is brought uh, in this dimension is the Italian Tunisia. Naturally, if we think about the Italian people today, they are operating under the same institutions, whether they live in the north or in the south of Italy. But nevertheless, today, income per capita in the south is two-thirds of income per capita in the north. And the question is why? 
uh, so many scholars suggest that a divide between the North and the South has to do with the emergence of different cultural traits in the North and the South. In the South, one dominating cultural trait that emerge is family ties. Greater reliance on the family in the in the, the conduction the conducting of uh, of transactions. Whereas in the North, we see the emergence of what what one may define as social capital, trust, and civic participation, and Indeed, to a large extent, we see this differential emergence, and one can attribute much of the divide to these cultural traits. But of course, the question is, why is it the case that in the South, we see the emergence of family ties, and in the South, in the North, a social capital? And this is basically leading us into earlier periods, either historical forces or geographical forces that may lead into this debate. As I said before, yes, from time to time, when we think about, uh, about differential cultural traits across the globe, they can be mapped into random cultural mutations. As we mentioned in the context of Judaism, the imposition of capricious at the time, mandatory literacy requirement that ultimately became very fruitful and productive, or in the context of the Protestant Reformation, the emphasis on entrepreneurship and accumulation. So here we see cultural mutations, they emerge without an intention to affect the population in the long run. They emerge out of a sort of narrow, sighted uh, religious uh, ideas. But ultimately, these random mutations caught like fire because they were very beneficial uh, for the process of development. And as we said, to a large extent, cultural traits are emerging in relations to the habitat in which people operate. And you mentioned the cloud. So what we see historically is that if you look at the world as a whole, and you basically divide the world based on the suitability of the land for the use of the plow. So some places are more suitable for the use of the plow than others. Those places naturally will implement and will adopt the plow earlier than others. Why is it so important? It is important because the plow at the time was rather heavy and it required an incredible amount of upper body strength so as to carry and to pull. And this gave comparative advantage in the use of the plow and ultimately agriculture to men over the other world. So before the use of the plow, in fact, agricultural activities are shared equally between men and women. And it is the plow that is causing gender division in agriculture. Women are confined to, a, to the homes and men are doing the agricultural job. And ultimately, this is persisting over time, and apparently it affects gender biases in today's world and labor force participation of women even today, namely places on average that were more suitable for the use of the plow thousands of years ago are suffering from lower labor force participation of women com in comparison to similar places in, uh, in other places. What would be main examples of countries where, where, where there was a lot of agriculture, but it was not very suitable for the plow? 
So if you think about it in the context of, uh, I mean, again, so suitability is a relative magnitude, right? So places that were very suitable for the use of the plow, places in the Fertile Crescent, where many of uh, the Arab nations are residing at the moment and, uh, and gender biases are very pronounced. But then again, we don't have a clear comparison. But if you think about Europe, Southern Europe versus Northern Europe, Southern Europe adopted the plow much earlier, he traditionally had uh, greater gender biases for, uh, for a long period of time. What about England and Britain more generally? So I, I don't have the data in front of me at the moment, but I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, sort of focus on, on very fine details there because again, I think that uh, when you look at regression analysis, there are a lot of outliers and naturally uh, this is a, an argument that is based on variations across the globe as a whole. And there could, I mean, looking at, you know, variations within regions, say within Europe, or variations within across regions, uh, the fertile crescent versus Europe, etc. So I would, wish, I would prefer now to refer to individual countries and in addition, I don't, uh, yes. That sounds fair enough. That sounds fair enough. Well, are there any other things about geography uh, and culture that you would want to bring up? So, so, so in fact, there are many of them that are very interesting. I think that uh, perhaps the most important one is the notion of the, the, the cultural trait that is known as future-oriented minds. Why is it so important? Because when you think about economic growth, economic growth ultimately is based on the process of accumulation and the process of technological progress. Both require future-oriented mindset. When you decide to adopt a new technology, okay, this is basically an investment decision that may pay a year from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now. When you decide to educate your children, this is an investment that will pay 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 30 years from now. When you decide to invest in, in, in an enter enterprise, again, you have to be future-oriented uh, in your orientation. It turns out that there are great variations in future-orientation uh, future across societies. Some societies tend to be more, more long-term oriented than others. And it turns out that these variations across the globe can be mapped to differences in the suitability of land for agriculture. But let me give you a very simple example. Think about two locations. One location is appropriate for fishing. Another location is, appro is appropriate for, a, for planting and harvesting wheat, okay? Naturally, think about the process. If you're a farmer that is in, in the location where wheat is suitable for the land, you engage in the process of planting and half a, uh, half a year later harvesting and then later on storage of some of the grains for difficult years that may come down the road. You really engage in a future-oriented uh, uh, processes. Nature, nature naturally in this type of environment is teaching you gradually how to delay gratification, how to plan for the future, and how to be future yet. Now think about your neighbor. 
Your neighbor is located in a place where fishing is the, is the, the best possible activity in order to generate income. But fishing by nature implies that you go at the end of the day, you go and fish, you don't have a good storage technology and you're going to cook what you, what you fish. And then in the next day, you start the process again. There is no future orientation that is associated with the process of fishing. Only, I mean, the only planning is that in the morning, you plan for the fishing day. But this is, I mean, it's a one-day planning. So very short-term orientation. And naturally, societies that are emerging in these type of locations would appear very different over time. And what I showed in my research, and this is a paper that was published in the American Economic Review in 2016, is that the variations in the suitability of the land for agriculture across the globe and the reward for agricultural investment induce different societies to delay gratification, to be future-oriented, and much of the variations in future-oriented mindset across the globe can be, can be mapped into the suitability of land. Before we leave the topic of uh, geography, I quickly want to ask your opinion on the kind of quite um, commonly held idea that there is something special about Europe in it being very decentralized, in there being a lot of small states. I mean, that's the one first thing you notice if you just look at the globe that, oh my God, there's a lot of small states there. Um, there's a kind of classic story that um, that this then leads into more competition, more innovation, also more uh, political dissent. Because I mean, a lot of the kind of great philosophers of the European Enlightenment era wrote uh, in exile. So my question would be: first of all, how important do you think that this was when, for example, comparing um, European countries to 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 Asian countries like China? And uh, to the extent that this was important, how much was this? manna from heaven and of random uh, historical uh, fact versus how it's driven by something different about the European geography versus Chinese or Indian geography. I think this argument is very important um, among many others. So we'll think about it simply in the context of why Europe rather than China. So when we think about Europe as a whole, it is geographically fragmented. So if you think about the, the major rivers that are segmenting the European continents, we can see uh, major mountain chains that are segmenting different, area, different areas in, in Europe, whether it's the Alps or the Pyrenees. We see that the, the coastal line is rather fractal. And as a result of it, it basically generates over time the emergence of large number of states, nations that are engaged in technological competition, political competition, and this healthy competition is ultimately leading into a process of innovations in all dimensions. It requires innovations on the philosophical front, it requires innovations in the political front, and it requires innovations and the economic front. This is a time period in which basically scientists can move from one location to another and offer their ideas to different monarchs or different rulers that in fact would like to remain ahead of the curve 
and they're eager, in fact, to support these type of scientists so as to maintain their edge in this competition. On the other end of the spectrum, we see China. China is relatively isolated geographically. China is engaged in unifying the, uh, the population. And in fact, the geography is amendable for this uh, unification. So in China, we see a cohesive society without internal competition that is basically, ultimately, initially is leading into prosperity because social cohesiveness is very important for productivity, but ultimately it's very stifling in the context of political change and technological change. China is dominating the world technologically in the Middle Ages. We see that this domination is eroding gradually and Europe is taking over partly due to this incredible political and economic competition across states. I think this idea that fragmentation in Europe is, is a very critical force behind the rise of Europe is uh, certainly powerful and, uh, and legitimate. Well, I guess that then serves also as a nice bridge into the topic of diversity. So I guess China versus Europe is a great example of this one, where now we're not talking about diversity as in how is China different, how is a Chinese different from European, but rather how much diversity between people there are in China versus Europe, for example. Um, this is a, it's quite, I think it's a quite a novel angle on this topic. I, I, I don't know other scholars that would have brought it such a forefront. You can introduce the topic the way you want to. Right. So, so as I said, when you think about the different layers of influence, we started with colonialism, institutions, culture, and back to geography, where we understood that in fact, geographical elements affected institutions, affected cultural traits. And we just talked about the fact that geography affected even political competition, economic competition. But ultimately, when we think about deep-rooted factors of development, to a large extent, one element that is very important that uh, was neglected for a long period of time in the economic literature is the role of diversity in economic development. And why is it so important? But when you think about diversity, diversity has conflicting effects on economic productivity. On the one hand, diversity is permitting cross-fertilization of ideas, complementarity in the production process, and as a result of it, diversity is conducive for innovations. But on the other hand, diversity is associated with social non-cohesiveness. The more diverse a society is, the less trustful individuals are to one another, the greater is the disagreement about the desirable public goods, and the greater is the tendency to social conflict. How strong is the correlation when you study that correlation? How, it makes sense, but how strong is the correlation when you study the relation between diversity? Regardless of how you measure uh, and how you try to identify, so very strong adverse effect of diversity on trust in others. As I said, this is across nations, across ethnic groups and across individuals within a nation. So there was a recent study that I published in a journal called Econometrica, one of the leading journals in economics, in which I show the diversity as incredibly powerful effect on conflict. The more diverse a society is, the greater the incidence of civil conflicts. 
Okay. And this dominates a lot of other variables that can, can appear on the scene. So this is very powerful. Diversity has an adverse effect on social non-cohesiveness very significantly. But on the other hand, diversity has a positive effect on cross-fertilization of ideas and innovations. So given these conflicting effects, it implies that if in fact diversity has a positive but diminishing effects on innovations, and if homogeneity has a positive and diminishing effects on social cohesiveness, there will be a sweet spot level of diversity, an intermediate level of diversity that would be conducive for development. And what I show is that historically, this sweet spot in the Middle Ages was somewhere in societies in Southeast Asia. Societies like China, Japan, and Korea at the time had the level of diversity that was conducive for development. Naturally, when we think about these societies, we view them as highly homogeneous. But at the time, homogeneity of this sort was conducive for development but it, because it was much more important to be socially cohesive than to be innovative because innovations were relatively slow. But as we move to today's world, what my findings are showing that the society that is optimally diverse today is the U.S. society, namely society that is incredibly more diverse than the Southeast Asian societies. And why is it so? Because in the world in which we live today, technology is evolving very rapidly and diversity is very important in generating the cultural fluidity that will allow us to navigate this stormy technological environment. And as we will move into the future and technology will evolve perhaps even more rapidly than, uh, than today, one should expect that the benefits of diversity will increase in turn. So in the context of the, the discussion, why Europe rather than China, as I said, China is dominating the world in the Middle Ages, technologically and otherwise. But ultimately, China is lagging behind in industrialization. Why? Because it doesn't have the cultural fluidity that allows the adjustment that was needed in the process of the Enlightenment and ultimately technological, pro technological progress in the Industrial Revolution. It is Europe that was a crossword of civilization. It was fragmented in a good way that generated diversity, and it is this diversity that permitted the ideas of enlightenment to emerge, the ideas of the scientific revolution to emerge, and ultimately industrialization to emerge. Whereas China, it was very cohesive, got stuck in the old technological paradigm that, that China was perfect in. I guess the one topic that would easily emerge from here is the topic of education and policy. I mean, one of the things that you emphasize uh, in your book is that um, you're not offering a one-size-fits-all solution when it comes to how to use these lessons. You, you, you are pointing out how different countries need different kind of solutions. For example, very diverse countries need very different solutions than very homogeneous countries. Um, to focus on these negative influences of diversity, which I think that for many people, this is to the extent that these correlations are, are really as strong as you imply. It, it is, to some extent, sad news. Um, how much do you think that the negative impacts of, of diversity, the lack of social trust, lack of social cohesiveness, how much can you 
um, push back against this with education, with cultural, with cultural training, for the lack of a better word. I mean, this is obviously I know that you don't have exact data on this, but but what's your educated guess, or or perhaps if you do have data, then please share it uh, on on how much could we assume that we could increase diversity as much as 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 we almost physically can, and then counter the possible negative effects with excellent education, cultural artifacts that celebrate diversity, etc. All right. So, so that's an excellent question. And uh, let me put it uh, in a broader perspective. So, so as you suggested correctly, when we think about the journey of humanity, the book that I drafted, to a large extent, the journey of humanity is showing us that much of the inequalities we see today across the globe can be traced to deep historical forces, forces that operated hundreds of years ago thousands of years ago, and even tens of thousands of years And the question is, of course, is it an additional contribution to what was known as the dismal science in the sense that generating some dark predictions about the long shadow of history that cannot be overcome? Is history a fate? And the argument is that, in fact, it is precisely the opposite. It is basically designed to empower us with the knowledge about the legacy of the past so as to design policies for the future that will mitigate the legacy of the past. So the main argument is that by understanding the history of each individual nation, by understanding the geography, the evolution of culture, the evolution of institutions, we will be in a better position to design policies that is going to be country-specific, not universal policies for all nations that will ultimately mitigate this, uh, uh, this uh, long-lasting impacts of the past. And let me talk about it in the context of diversity. As I said, diversity is very important. In fact, if we look at the variations in income per capita across the globe today, according to my estimates, about 20% of the variations, unexplained variations in income per capita today can be traced to the role of diversity. And as I explain in the book, much of these variations were determined during the exodus from atomically modern humans from Africa, nearly 60,000 to 90,000 years ago. These are really deep roots of, uh, of inequality today. Basically, the further people are from the migration, the more homogeneous they are, and the closer they are, the more diverse they are, correct? Precisely. And now, so why is it so important? Because, as I said, think about two societies. Take a society that is very diverse. Say, an African society today, like Ethiopia. Ethiopia is mirrored in, in civil conflict. Now, as we said before, Diversity potentially has two conflicting effects. On the one hand, it can foster innovations, but on the other hand, it can generate civil conflicts and mistrust. And in the context of Ethiopia, this is the dominating effect. So, again, we have limited resources. We understand that we wish to educate the population, but we have to be wise in the design of curriculum. In the context of Ethiopia, we have to design a curriculum that will instill in pupils in a very early stage of their lives the ability to respect one another, 
the ability to respect other ethnic groups, the ability to cherish pluralism that exists in society, and consequently, hopefully, to mitigate the cost of labor. If we think about the other end of the spectrum, take a society that is relatively homogeneous. We can take an extreme case, so we can think about even China today. Naturally, the level of homogeneity in China is not necessarily beneficial for the prosperity of China in the long run. China made now the transition into the industrial age, but there will be an additional transition. Again, the homogeneity will trap China again in the old technological paradigm. So, again, if the Chinese society would have been open to these ideas, then they would have educated their children how, in fact, to challenge the status quo, how to think outside of the box, how to, in fact, um, 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 be willing not to uh, sort of take orders and to obey orders, but to challenge any uh, type of, uh, of conceivable wisdom. This will generate diversity in a place where it's missing, will generate cross-fertilization of ideas, and ultimately will be very beneficial for economic development. And in the context of China, it may be difficult because it may contradict the ideas of authoritarian regimes about their the willingness to, uh, to educate people to, be, uh, to disobey in some sense and to, to challenge the status quo. But if you think about societies that are not totalitarian, I mean, think about some, some societies that are predominantly uh, Native Americans in South America. And again, there, if you teach children how to challenge the status quo, she teach children to, uh, to think outside of the box, then you will foster diversity in a place that it's missing and ultimately promote prosperity. So the idea is education is not enough. It will be a very different education that will be applicable to, uh, to, uh, to, to Ethiopia than to Bolivia or to, uh, to China. Well, that's pretty much the overview of your of your book. I mean, I have a couple of questions maybe that to, it would be interesting to hear how you think through these things before we end. The first one that I would like to ask is about the so-called middle income trap or, or almost like a, you could even call it the trap of industrialism that sometimes countries that industrialize or start, start having, for example, a factory output very fast, have a difficulty in jumping from being middle-income countries to high-income countries. It's very few countries that have been in the middle-income group and then are clearly in the high-income group now. Um, I guess the short answer to this typically from economists is say you need to educate people. Uh, you need to invest in education. But how, how do you think through those issues, this kind of potential middle-income trap. And, and maybe if you want, you can bring China in it because China is in, this, is in this situation where a lot of industry is leaving China probably in the next 10 years and they have to figure out what to, what to do next in a way. Indeed. So, uh, so as you suggested correctly, I mean, when we think about industry and particularly low-skill industry, at the time of the Industrial Revolution, this was uh, in fact the frontier and this was basically the locomotive of the economics. But ultimately, it is in fact low-skill industry that are trapping societies and, and trapping regions within, within societies in some sort of uh, development trap. Because 
In fact, they generate very little demand for human capital. And as a result of it, they generate limited incentive for people to invest in their education. And consequently, it doesn't provide incentive for the industrialists in this region to invest in technologies that could, uh, could use human capital. And this becomes a trap. So industrialism, it does require more investment than agriculture, but less investment than some alternatives, right? And then when you think about it in the context of nations, I think that somehow developing nations are under the perception that perhaps one should follow the route that developing the developed world followed, namely start with low-skill industry and move gradually through the ladder. And I think this is a terrible mistake in the sense that it is a trap. I mean, at the moment that you start with, in today's world with an industry that is low skill intensive, trapping your population in low level of investment in education, and then you will prevent industrialists from implementing and adopting technologies that are more high skill intensive, more education intensive, and this will simply drag the transition from stagnation to growth for a long period of time. So the way to go is, in fact, emphasize education at the outset and hope for technologies that at least demand some education. You don't want low-skill technologies because this is a dead end. You want some demand for education so as to start the process, uh, the process slowly. Is this what went uh, wrong in, for example, Mexico and went right in East Asia, countries like South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, do you think? Well, so I think that these societies, I mean, invested greatly in, in education and this was helpful for them in making, in making the transition. I and mean, if you think about uh, Southeast Asian societies like Korea, and as you mentioned before, if you think about a society like Israel, again, what permitted the Israeli society to make the transition, is really incredibly high level of investment in education that positioned Israel to be uh, in, in this particular niche of a startup nations where new technologies could, could exploit this unusually high level of skills. And this is where developing nations should aspire to be, not just trying to do what was good 200 years ago, but in fact, forecast the future and realize that in fact, you would like to be engaged in industries in which there is demand for education and industries in which there are technological spillovers, because otherwise producing bananas has no limit, no, no technological spillovers, no demand for human capital. And this is a dead end in the process of development. It can generate a little benefit in terms of gains from trade, but ultimately the benefits are going to be very, very short, very shortly. Okay, three very quick questions. First of all, do, do humanities have any space in this educational curriculum that you would suggest to nations who want to use heavy investment in education as a way to uh, become rich? Well, they, we, we live in a world in which technology is evolving very, very rapidly. And in order to cope with this rapidly changing technological environment, we need to invest in education. 
you need to invest in flexible education. Education that will fit not only the technological vintage to today, but the one that will be present five years from now, 10 years from now, etc. I think that at least the, the next few decades perhaps are not going to complement very well education that you defined in the context of the humanities. I mean, we know that technology is, is evolving very, very rapidly, and we know that different types of special talents will be rewarded. At the moment, they're highly correlated with uh, education that has to do with sciences, engineering, computer science, economics, etc. But it's possible that, uh, that other subjects will be favored uh, unlikely, but it's possible. Yeah, something that is of personal interest, given that most of my income comes from teaching philosophy, psychology, and history. But uh, <laughs> let's continue. Next question. You said that Marx was wrong. Is Thomas Piketty right? I mean, Piketty would agree with you that around 100 years ago, things went very well. That's a time when inequality started increasing rapidly, but he would say that this is not a trend that is continuing. And if we don't change something dramatically, inequality will just keep on growing, especially within nations, perhaps also between nations. What do you make of that? I, I would like to make a general statement. I don't want to think about it necessarily in the context of the writing of Piketty. So I would make it in the context of my perception of inequality. So when I think about inequality in the past, say, four or five decades, we can certainly see the technological acceleration starting from the 1970s, change the technological landscape in which people operated, increased dramatically initially the return to education, but perhaps more importantly, the, uh, the differential return within the educated groups, namely special talents were rewarded higher than otherwise. Now, as we move into the future, and I'm a proponent of the view that in fact, technological acceleration will maintain its force. And the way that I would like to see society operating differently is in the following dimensions. First, I think that both in terms of fairness and economic efficiency, we have to assure that societies permit equality of opportunities in the sense that every individual in society, regardless of parental education, parental wealth, neighborhood background, etc., should be able to invest in yourself or in himself to a full extent. Every person based on the potential, but the potential should be fulfilled. If this will happen, then at least we know that in this lottery, if you wish, that, that technology is generating, the participation will be equal across all members of society. And if some of us will be more prosperous than others, it is not based on, on privileges that were granted due to parental wealth or parental education or political power, etc. So this will assure at least that there is fairness in the way that the technology will complement us individually, first. And second, it will assure that there, that there is a better allocation of talents across the Ukraine. Now, this will not resolve the issue of inequality. This will generate, as I said, more prosperity and more fairness. But naturally, as we know, we're not equal. 
Some of us have ta great talents in one dimension. Others have great talents in other dimensions. And the technology in which we live may complement one dimensions of talents rather than another. And it is not our fault in the sense that this is our uh, makeup and this is what we can do under the circumstances. You mentioned before humanity or the sciences, etc. If we have great talent in one dimension and not in other, as I said, today we may be on the winning side because the technology is complementing our traits. Tomorrow we may be on the losing side because the technology will be different. This is simply based on the lottery of nature. Some of us are, as I said, more gifted musicians. Some of us are more gifted scientists. Some of us are more gifted in writing. And, and the technology is not complementing all these elements alike. And as a result of it, a generous society should provide safety nets to all individuals so as to assure that every person will have a respectable way of living regardless of whether the traits that this individual was born with are complemented by the technology. I guess about the safety nets, we probably all have a pretty good grasp of what this would look like, but what about for the equality of opportunity? I mean, people often use this across the political spectrum. For you, what is it? How do you get equality of opportunity? Is it by giving uh, a lot more, more, more money? I mean, for example, Piketty suggested the government literally gives a huge amount of money, national inheritance to all members when they are what, was 25 years or something. But what, what, what kind of, how, how radical would you like to be in promoting equality of opportunity? Yeah, so, so we can interpret it in different ways. I, I can certainly tell you about my view of the world, my view of the world that I'd like individuals to have their liberties, their civil liberties and their individual liberties. I wouldn't like uh, governments and societies to micromanage my, uh, my personal affairs. I wouldn't like to get into the decisions of individuals about how they care about themselves and how they care about the future. I would like to, to be very modest in life so as to permit my child to be more prosperous. This is my decision. And here, if, if a parent decided basically, I'm willing to sacrifice my own well-being so as to assure that my child is more comfortable, that's a decision. I wouldn't like to intervene and say, okay, inheritance is not legitimate. That's legitimate because it's my decision as a parent how I would like to allocate my resources. But a society can tax me, and that's legitimate. If the rich and the companies say that then they will just leave and find another country that taxes them less, what do you do? Do you believe it's a bluff? Uh, do you educate people from the young age onwards to want to contribute to the common project? Um, is there any solution to this problem, ever-increasing problem, that with increasing mobility of both assets and people, those who are taxed heavily can just change the country? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's a complicated issue. And again, uh, I'm a proponent of individual liberties and civil liberties and conflicting, conflicted in this dimension. But I do think that uh, naturally an agreement could be reached across uh, nations so as to assure that, uh, that uh, a greater harmony can be generated and that individuals are contributing to, uh, to the notion of a fair society and a fair world. A fair world. 
it's not going to be simple, but I think that again, uh, ultimately it is to the benefit of all, because if inequality will continue to increase beyond what we see at the moment, the likelihood of tremendous social unrest and major destruction of wealth and productivity is going to, to become uh, uh, too large uh, uh, in the context of a healthy economic environment. I think that in the end, despite the fact that I'm a proponent of, so, of civil liberties and individual liberties, I think that it's inevitable. We need coordination across nations so as to assure that once individuals will participate and will contribute their fair share to assure that we live in a fair society in a fair world. A third, a brief question, which you can apply with brevity or not, uh, depending on your wishes, about uh, the way you look at the world through your book. You say that you're an optimist. I think many people struggle to be an optimist in the current times even if they're optimistic about many of the challenges that we face, climate change is certainly looming large in, in many people's minds, tilting them towards deep pessimism about the capacity of anything like the 20th century being replicated in the 21st century when it comes to wealth creation, uh, not to speak of, uh, of getting rid of all the, all, all the inequality that we've created. So what makes you optimistic and uh, should we all be optimists? Let me rephrase it a little bit. I would say that I'm hopeful um, and, uh, um, and not naive. And my hopefulness is based in, uh, on my study of the past. And what I learned from the study of the past is that over this 300,000 year journey from the Sapiens, humanity was faced by incredible catastrophes. I mean, starting with potential catastrophe in the eve of the agricultural revolution, uh, the catastrophe in the aftermath of the Black Death, the catastrophes that were associated with uh, the atrocities and the tragedies of uh, World War One, World War Two, the, the Spanish flu at the time, the Great Depression. So, and. I can see a sequence of events that were at the time for any individual that lived through them appeared overwhelming, appeared perhaps uh, to, to, to a signal about uh, an ending world, an ending, uh, the ending of humanity, etc. But nevertheless, in each of these instances, ultimately humanity returned to its previous course. Those generations that lived through these catastrophes, say those individuals that lived through World War II, were scarred for life. But nevertheless, humanity's whole emerged with greater strengths, with greater resolves, with a better understanding how to avoid these catastrophes and march forward. Now, admittedly, the climate crisis is really incredibly frightening and uh, one cannot minimize the importance of it and one cannot be complacent even for instance. But when I'm referring to the fact that I am hopeful, I don't want people to misinterpret this, to suggest that we can sit quietly and everything will be fine. That's certainly not what I'm saying. I'm saying is in fact the opposite. I'm saying should be very vigilant 
This is a real challenge. We should be very vigilant. We should be engaged in a rapid transition into environmentally friendly technologies. We should be engaged in stricter standards of carbon emission across the globe. We should be engaged in greater coordination across nations and planetaries. But at the same time, based on the history of humanity, I do believe in the power of innovations and I do believe in human ingenuity. And I think that as was the case, say, in the context of COVID-19, COVID-19 occurred, there was a great amount of discussion that life will never return to what it used to. And in fact, life after a few years is back to what it used to, to a large extent. And this is due to human ingenuity, mRNA technologies that were unthinkable before emerge. Human ingenuity rescue us within a very, very short period of time. Now, the challenge of climate is perhaps appears insurmountable at the moment, but I do think that if we are not going to be complacent and if we are going to basically mitigate the current trend of climate change, given the fact that population is declining, population growth is declining across the globe and ultimately going to decline in absolute scale, and therefore the number of polluting individuals is going to decline gradually. I do think that scientists will have three or four decades to develop revolutionary technologies that at the moment we cannot fully envision. That's the nature of technologies that will ultimately allow us to reverse the current trend of climate change. Naturally, this is a conjecture, and this is a conjecture based on my uh, inspection of human history and human ingenuity. That's my hopefulness. Again, I'm not naive. I understand that the challenge is huge, but I'm hopeful given the sort of the record of human ingenuity. Well, before we end, Professor Galor, writing this book, doing all the research that has brought you to writing this book, what would be some of the ways that uh, your view of humanity has changed, evolved? How has your research shaped the way you look at us as a creature? Yeah, so what I learned over uh, the past three decades of research and certainly what was uh, ultimately summarized in the context of uh, my recent book, The Journey of Humanity, is that what permitted humanity to make the transition from stagnation to growth is the distinguishing characteristics of humans relative to other species, namely the human brain. And it is precisely the fact that we had the capacity not only to survive in the environment, but to shape the environment that made us what we are. Namely, it is a modest group of individuals that resided in Africa very long ago, equipped with the human brain that permitted this group to innovate, to support a larger population, that innovate further and basically started to propel uh, these uh, winds of change and ultimately brought us from uh, to the current period of sustained economic growth and to the great inequality that we see across the globe. 
So it is all about the technological capacity, the ability of individuals to innovate that made us who we are and as a species and make us unique on planet Earth. Ironically, our ability to affect the environment uh, that, uh, that in which we live has ultimately led us into the current climatic crisis. Um, and uh, hopefully, as I said, in the race between the damage that we created to the environment and our technological capabilities, the winning side will be our technological capability that will mitigate the damage that was created in the other side of our innovations. I certainly hope so. Professor Ordek Galor, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode until the very end. I really enjoy recording, editing, and, and doing all the work that goes into these episodes. I, I hope that you enjoy the product. If you do, then I would really appreciate a helping hand. Uh, it can be something as simple as giving a nice review on your podcast app, sharing it with a friend, or if you haven't done so, just subscribing. That really helps immensely at this early stage of building the show. Whatever you decide to do, I hope that you decide to tune in the next time. Until then, take care. <laughs>